You are listening to KZUM Lincoln. Welcome to How's It Growing, your weekly garden connection only here at KZUM Lincoln. Well, kind of a different opening song. Well, I have to play it pretty much every summer because it just gets me right there in the old heartstrings. That's Nancy Griffith off her uh, late night Grand Hotel CD, Fields of Summer. Hopefully you're out frolicking in Fields of Summer well, before the oppressive heat comes on anyway, and uh, being mindful of chiggers, right? <laughs> and all those things. Well, welcome to the program. This is How's It Growing? Hi, I'm Bob Henriksen. I'm with them. PlantNebraska.org for great gardening information. A revamped website there at PlantNebraska.org. And you'll be glad you did. Hopefully I'll be hearing uh, from my cohort, Sarah Buckley, a little later on. She's going to be calling in, uh, talking about a... Uh, an opportunity for water-wise landscapes and public projects, so stick around for that. And I, am, Otherwise, I'm flying solo today. My friend Barbara Salvatore, normally doing our Plant Stories Life Medicines, wasn't able to make it uh, this month, but we'll be back with Barbara sometime in the fall and uh, looking forward to that conversation. We're going to be talking about some cool plants for herbal healing, but again, that'll be for another day. Looking forward to this Saturday. This Saturday, I'm heading up to Stanton area, uh, Red Road Herbs and Rachel's hosting a Prairie Herbalist Conference. Too late for you to register now, but boy, keep it in mind for next year. 16 speakers, I'm one of them, and I'm going to be talking about wild edible plants. Go figure. And a lot of great speakers there for the second annual Prairie Herbalists Conference coming up this Saturday. Looking forward to that. And then I have, a, let us see, Nebraska Floodplain and Stormwater Management Association is having a conference in Kearney tomorrow. So I got to head to Kearney tomorrow to give a presentation on wetland plants for stormwater mitigation. Boy, what a title, huh? So that'll be fun talking about uh, wetland species, uh, something I'm really into and really about much on the program here. That is for another day. Okay, so uh, yeah, if you follow uh, How's It Growing on Facebook yet, it's How's It Growing KZUM. If you type it in on Facebook, you will find it. Otherwise, I think if you just type in how's it growing, you'll get some other site out east, but whatever. whatever. But uh, we encourage you to uh, follow how's it growing and uh, you get updates from Nancy. She posts, uh, uh, does a great job posting um, who's coming up on the show. And anyway, she had posted earlier in the week about me flying solo and what I'm going to talk about today. But I also want to encourage you, if you've been holding back calling into the program, today would be a great day for you to do that. Any questions, any comments, whatever you want to talk about plant-related or maybe an event you have coming up that you want to tell me and uh, our listeners about, boy, that'd be fantastic too. Uh, it is the fastest hour in radio. And just a quick shout-out to Stransky Park Summer Concert Series uh, coming to an end this Thursday, I believe. And the last show, you're not going to want to miss a great concert series every Thursday at 7 o'clock. This Thursday, we have Hector Anchando. If you haven't seen Hector yet, man, uh, go. Just go. You'll be glad you did. One heck of a guitar player, award-winning guitar player from the Omaha area. And I think he's bringing his whole band to the Hector Anchando. Looking forward to that Thursday night. Stop by the KZUM booth and say howdy to your KZUM friends and uh, man, it's just going to be a great uh, a great time. And yeah, today they're t- weather wise you know, a little bit cooler than yesterday. Anyway, in the low 90s, and I think the humidity is just a slight bit less today, right? But it's going to build. Oh, but man, it could always be worse, as I like to say. Uh, 
I follow Ken Dewey. Ken's a uh, retired uh, climatologist from UNL. I follow him on Facebook, and he does some great posts. That's D-E-W-E-Y. Friend request him, and he will acknowledge that. Anyway, he posted a picture of uh, the current temperatures in Oklahoma yesterday. And for the first time in Oklahoma's history, there was not a reporting station in the entire state of Oklahoma that wasn't above 100 degrees. I mean, there were areas 111. Uh, my, oh my. I didn't look at Texas heat yesterday, what they were at, but people like to complain and say, oh, Nebraska, I hate the, I hate the summers in Nebraska. Well, I have a feeling you would hate the summers in Oklahoma or Texas or Kansas or Missouri or Arkansas or Mississippi or Kentucky or Tennessee, right? Uh, quit blaming Nebraska weather. Those are political borders. People, we didn't do it. <laughs> but one thing I will say is, man, we could use a shot of rain. And uh, looking ahead of the forecast, I didn't, I didn't peek ahead seven-day forecast or anything, but nothing on the horizon. So bear with the dog days of summer. They are upon us. And speaking of the dog days of summer, man, there's some plants out there that uh, I want to talk about today. And hopefully uh, you will be uh, inspired with these plants and say to yourself, man, these are some real heat lovers. You know, who can beat the heat? Well, some of the plants I'm going to talk about today certainly can beat the heat. But first, we have a caller on the line. Hello, caller. Who am I speaking with? Hello, Bob. This is Mark Broman with uh, Just Audubon. How are you doing? Mark, pretty good. How are you? I'm doing great. I wanted to call in and uh, give your listeners a little update on our tour of the wild side that's coming up in a little over two weeks away. Tour the wild side. And uh, Mark, thanks so much for calling in. And, uh, you know, Jason uh, from uh, Spring Creek Prairie had contacted me, oh, I don't know, a couple months ago and asked if uh, if uh, my property could be on that uh, tour list. And I told him, man, I would really love to. We have construction on both sides of the streets. I had big holes in my yard. Eh, I don't, it's not tour ready. <laughs> But I no, said, keep me in mind. Year, maybe next year. Um, it kind of puts that 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 kind of like uh, I better make yeah, sure my place is on. <laughs> right, pressure's on. My place look, looks good. And tell me, Mark, is this how many years have you guys been doing this tour on the wild side? Well, this is only the second year for the the wild side tour. Before it was the backyard tour, so it's really the same thing. Okay. Only we called it the backyard tours, and it used to be on Father's Day, but now we've moved it. Uh, it's going to be Saturday, August sixth. So it's coming up in a little over two two weeks. So it's August 6th from 10 o'clock until 2 p.m., and we've got six sites, and then we've got a bonus site. And so I'll tell you just real quickly, and again, this is sponsored by Wachiska Audubon and Spring Creek Prairie. Awesome. And it's basically a tour to show people native plants, uh, how to use them in your landscape, see how things look so people know, hey, I can plant that in my yard, and that's what that tree or shrub or forb would look like. And uh, so I'll just, just tell you real quickly the, the uh, seven sites we have. Uh, we've got Peg and Larry Fletcher's Prairie. It's a 25-acre prairie out on uh, basically 105th and A Street, and uh, they've got a lot of landscaping around their yard, plus the additional bonus is their 25-acre prairie that was planted about 20 years ago. And I was out there the other day, and lots and lots of birds, so bring your binoculars to come out. They are asking people to wear masks on their site just because of COVID, but it's the only site where we're requiring masks. Okay. And that's uh, uh, the Fletcher Prairie at uh, 105th and A, and then we've got uh, Tim and Carol Hinkle, they're out on uh, about 800, 148th in Holdridge. 
the address is 1305 Plum Ridge Road, and people can go to our website, which is godabon.org, or call the office and okay. get more details. We put a, a story in our babbling book, our monthly newsletter, too. But the Hinkles are out there at 148th and Holdridge, and they've got an eight-acre prairie. They've also got some solar panels, so you can talk to them about that. But they've cool. got a lovely property out there. And then while you're out in that country, uh, the bonus property, the seventh one uh, in that part of town is the Prairie Pines, uh, which is uh, 3100 North, 112th. And that's that's uh, Walt Bagley, Walt and Virginia Bagley have a 145-acre woodland out there that now is ran by the University of Nebraska. It's got grasslands, wetlands, and a remnant prairie. Really nice place. So that's our bonus property. Cool. And then we've got Alders Gate at the United Methodist Church at 84th. And uh, South Street, it's 1.9 acres of green space, just a lovely spot. I was out there the other day, and they've done tremendous work. So, Isn't it uh, amazing? You're welcome to go there and, and see that site. Yeah. And then we've got Dave and Linda Tennington, who have been sponsors um, of your show. Yeah, uh, yeah. I heard their advertisement right before you went online there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, their, their property at 6324 Starling Circle is going to be on there. So Dave and Linda uh, are being gracious and having their property on. And then we've got the Walt Branch Library. It's a little garden that Wachiska planted out there. It's a 900-square-foot native planting garden, so it's really for the birds and the pollinators. Really nice little thing out there. It's uh, on South 14th Street, 6701 South 14th, and then the 19th and Arapahoe Street. Nice. And it was started in 2013, and they've got some really nice plantings there. And I believe that the Jason the Bird Nerd will be at that site nice. um, and, and showing off that property. So. All of these are free. Uh, we will take free will donations, and we will have some drawings for some free things and giving away some things, and we will have some native plants that we will be having available if people want to make a small donation. We'll have some plants at one of the sites, and Walt Branch will have the Raptor Conservation Alliance. They'll have some uh, uh, raptors out there for the kids and, and the parents to see at, at uh, the Walt uh, location. So nice. it's going to be a great day, uh, 10 to 2 on August 6th. That is a, a great deal and a great time of year to do it. I think, you know, yeah, we're in the dog days of summer, you know, and uh, Wichiska doing the Father's Day tours is was a long time running. And, uh, you know, the, the shift is, uh, I think, a cool one. And, uh, you know, getting out there in the heat of summer, that's that's where prairie plants thrive, folks. Is, yeah. uh, man, it's like they're, they shrug their shoulders and go, heat, come <laughs> on, man, bring it on. But, uh, yeah, and actually, I, uh, I volunteered to be one of the whatever roaming, uh, they call it roaming naturalist at the, uh -huh. at the Aldersgate site, I think okay. from 10 till noon. Uh, so looking forward to uh, hooking up with Steve there again at Ald Aldersgate Church there at, uh, what, at the corner of the 84th and South. Um, yes. My, oh, my. Uh, example for, I think, all the churches throughout the community and not, not just the community, the state, to say, hey, we've got a large property. Let's convert it into, uh, well, you know, we think about the inside of the church as God's house. Well, God's house is also outside the church. And uh, yes. and I think he would prefer more than just turf grass and concrete. So, hey. Very serene, you know. too. When people walk the grounds, it's, it allows people to go out and reflect. And I think you're exactly right. You can reflect inside the building and outside the building. No doubt. And just a, a great uh, a, a great thing that they're doing. And I've been to Peg and Larry Fletcher's uh, property out there at 105th and A. Uh, just a, a great thing. And quiz them about how did you do this? Because I remember right, Peg just basically, they, they got a big bale of prairie hay 
like one of those big round, uh, huge things dropped off at their place and they just tore it apart and, uh, and threw it, threw it out there for, you know, sowed their own seed, just top dressed it with that hay. <laughs> and that's yep. how they got that prairie. I think that's yeah. pretty cool. And if anyone is out on the Mopac trail, it goes right by there. So yeah. next time you're going by it, you know, 105th and, and A street, you know, just stop and take a look at the prairie. You can stop all along that prairie and, and just enjoy the, the uh, native prairie there. Now it's a replanted prairie, like you said, but it, it looks awful nice because it's 20 years plus old now. No doubt. Uh, but it's really looking good. Too cool. Too cool. Okay, so that's the Wild Side Tour. Go to more inf- for more information, go to wachiscaaudubon.org, correct, yes. Mark? Yep, or you can call the office at 486-4846, and we're also on Facebook. Okay, well, folks, we will see you on Saturday, August 6th, and Mark is going to make sure he's ordering the best weather possible that's for right. us. That's <laughs> right, for being one of our volunteers to help one of our naturalists. Yeah, my um, pleasure. All right, Mark. Well, okay. well, I'm, I'm glad to hear your voice and glad to hear you're, you've hooked up with which... job over here. I really enjoy it. I love the folks. I've been a member forever, and I've, I've just been the executive director since November. So, yeah, but I've had a life over having a good time and doing good things. Well, that is just awesome. They're lucky to have you, and you're lucky to have Wachiska. So good work, mister. Thanks, Bob. All right, we'll talk soon. Bye. Take care. Bye. All right, Mark Roman from Wachiska Audubon. Good stuff, Mark. The Wild Side Tour coming up on Saturday, August 6th. The check it out people you'll be glad you did and uh you know getting to garden and uh, giving sue a shout out gardening with nature in mind and that's what these properties are all about so hope you can attend uh saturday august 6th from 10 till 2 you don't have to follow any route it's all up to you you got four hours to do it pack some lunch have a picnic at one of the sites and uh, bring the family and uh, see how many different fun critters you can find at these great prairie garden sites so that uh again the wild side tour coming up right around the corner okay speaking of of prairie plants tough birds uh tough plants you know i wanted to talk about heat loving plants a little bit today and you can't really talk about summer and summer bloomers without old black-eyed susie and the black-eyed susans are a great group of to be planting more black-eyed susans but there's one out there i want to tell you about that's woefully overlooked and underutilized it's a little confusing well wait a minute i thought coneflower was purple coneflower I know, whoever gave these plants common names, you know, they could have thought of this a little more. So you can think of it as sweet black-eyed Susan or sweet coneflower. It's a Rudbeckia species, and the Rudbeckias are the black-eyed Susans. This one is Rudbeckia subtomentosa, and it's a tall one. And the black-eyed Susans are in bloom right now, but this guy, the sweet coneflower, uh, blooms right after the uh, the common black-eyed Susan, the annual black-eyed Susan, is finished. So it gets uh, started a little bit later, and it's taller. Uh, typical black-eyed Susans are two to three feet tall. The sweet coneflower, it's up there to five feet. And big flowers, at least three inches across, you know, look just like a black-eyed Susan. But if you stick your nose in them when they're in full bloom, kind of more of a, uh, actually has a scent, a sweet scent. And actually, we'll seed later on with those um, those little uh, center cones, if you will. You kind of rub the cones in the palm of your hands to get the seed to come out, you know. And the smell of your hands, the smell of the room is just delightfully sweet and fragrant. And you might have guessed sweet coneflower gets its name for that sweet scent, but it was also used to make a tea. And yours truly has not done that yet. Put that on the official bucket list. The leaves are a little more coarse. It's actually native to more uh, lowland prairies, low areas, but it does just fine in a hot, dry, sunny area in the garden. It's a tough plant. 
a good plant. In fact, I think if it gets too much water or too much shade, i.e. you top watering it, it'll flop a little bit on you. But just plant it out there and forget it once you get it established. It's a long-lived, easy-to-grow plant. Put it on your bucket list, the uh, sweet coneflower or sweet black-eyed Susan. It loves the fields of summer. Okay, and a group of plants that, uh, well, actually, I'm going to hopefully have time for a couple groups of plants, but one I want to talk about are the sizzling silphiums. The silphiums are, are really built for summer heat. That's when they bloom. They bloom in July and August, and uh, some of them just getting started now. Um, there's basically a group of four of them you should put on your wish list. And silphiums, first of all, they have a cool name. They're very close. They, they're cousins of the, the sunflowers, and the flowers look very similar, if not identical to a sunflower. It's actually hard to tell. And um, But the silphiums bloom like a month earlier than the sunflowers. Sunflowers are more like your September bloomer, right? Whereas the silphiums bloom in August. So that's one way to tell them apart. Our native sunflowers aren't quite blooming yet. Well, anyway, the silphiums. Put this on your wish list. One one favorite of a lot of people is called cup plant. Cup plant is because the the leaves kind of clasp this big square stem. And uh, the, the leaves clasp to where after a rainfall or watering, um, those cups actually fill with water. And birds and insects will take advantage of that water being held up uh, by those leaves that are clasping the stems. It's kind of a really cool thing. No other plant I know of does that. Uh, well, maybe down in the tropics, but certainly no other prairie plant that we're aware of. And it's a big boy. I mean, we're talking cup plant will get a solid eight feet tall. And uh, so maybe a little too tall for some people, but other people just love its um, robustness. They love the fact that it's like a, a good screen. If you're looking to screen a neighbor and you don't want to wait for a, uh, a pine tree or whatever to do its thing, man, this cup plant will give you a full grown plant in probably two to three years at the most. So it's fast growing, easy to grow, tough as nails, and talk about a pollinator extraordinaire. When it's in bloom, the bees just go crazy for this thing. So look for cup plant at your local nursery. Uh, its cousin is called compass plant. And compass plant, I think I've talked about on the program before, compass plant is uh, in bell. And compass plant has these really leaves, cut leaf oak on steroids. And the leaf, the actual leaf itself, I kid you not, gets two feet tall, one, two feet wide. And if you, if you rub up against it or rub your fingers on it, it's, it's rougher than the coarsest sandpaper. You'd rather to cover itself with that coarse sandpaper. Well, that texture is probably not too much fun to eat for critters. So it keeps bay from grazing on it because with the leaf that size, you better be protecting yourself from, from animals. Otherwise, they're going to eat you alive. <laughs> anyway, compass plant, cool plant that, uh, how did it get its name, compass plant? Well, the leaves, those big, gnarly, two-foot-high leaves actually will orient themselves north and south if you look at the plant. And so the settlers named it compass plant for that reason. Indeed, Native Americans uh, revered that plant. They uh, kind of the uh, tradition with the Pawnee is don't camp near compass plant because it attracts lightning. And it has other uses as well. But anyway, cool plant, uh, very tall. The, the, 
the, the basal foliage of this plant, those huge leaves only get about, oh, maybe two feet high or so. But then out of that basal foliage, it sends this flowering stalk that rises up above that foliage to, I kid you not, at least six feet, if not eight feet, topped with this cool cluster of flowers. Really, really awesome plant, the compass plant. And it will outlive you if you plant it in the garden. It will outlive your kids. Um, um, in fact, Aldo, Le- Aldo Leopold, in his book, Sand County Almanac, called it. The- and, uh, you know, again, for posterity, we all should be planting the silphiums, including the compass plant. The difference is cup plant, the one- first one I talked about, cup plant likes growing near waterways, uh, low areas, whereas the does bring on the dry, hot, sunny area. So that's kind of where they roll. And then one, I think you have, well, actually two. Another one is called rosinweed. And rosinweed is a woefully overlooked wildflower that's also a silphium. And rosinweed is in bloom now as well. Loves the heat of summer. And actually, you can see a rosinweed plant uh, down at the Pioneers Park Nature Center at the Prairie Building. On the southwest side, they have both a compass plant and a rosinweed planted side by side and they also have cup plant in their prairie planting there by the prairie building so a great location for you to see all three of these that i'm talking about thank goodness for public landscapes that uh, we can all go and learn about these plants see these plants in action and then finally cup uh, one other silphium i want to tell you about is called prairie dock and prairie dock was named i suppose the leaves looked like uh the 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 what, the slippery dock, the sour dock that we all have around as a weed, right? Uh, but prairie dock, um, man, it's such a cool plant. Just if you're sitting at your computer right now or you have your smartphone handy and you're not driving, just Google prairie dock images and you'll see what I mean. Um, the, the leaves are just like, <laughs> just like, they're like a trip. They're like a spatula. I mean, they're huge, um, two feet wide, again, rough like sandpaper. And... Uh, the individual leaf looks like a huge fan, and uh, a, and it kind of forms a cluster of these leaves, and then out of that basal cluster of leaves, again, comes a naked stalk coming up out of that baby, and it'll each topped with beautiful sunflower uh, sunflowers, and uh, it's just such a cool plant. I'm telling you what, um, if, you, if you have time, look it up. You'll be glad you did. And uh, not as easy to find in the trade. We have offered it before at the Statewide Arboretum. I need to get some seed again. Hint, hint, nudge, nudge. Need to talk to my friends to score me some prairie dock seed because I don't have one at home. But it's a, it's a very cool, long-lived plant as well. Okie dokie. Uh, this is going to be the fastest hour in radio. Uh, when we come back, I'm going to I'm going to take a quick break here. When we come back, I'm going to talk about uh, another group of plants quickly, and then we're going to move into some foraging fun for you to see what should you be out there foraging right here, right now. This is How's It Growing right here on KZUM. Thanks for tuning in. Hi, I'm Bob Hendrickson with the Statewide Arboretum talking about summer sizzlers, summer heat-loving plants that you should have in your garden to help shore up our nation's biodiversity, make a difference, and uh, get rid of that turf grass, plant plants that are easy to grow, you don't have to fuss with, and guess what? You don't have to mow once a week or water or mess with. And the pollinating insects and other critters will be so happy you did. Okay, well, I was uh, before the break there, I was talking about sizzling summer silphiums the uh, rosin weeds, the compass plants, the cup plant, and the prairie dock. 
Oh, my. They're just awesome. And if I had my way, there'd be a public garden somewhere here in Lincoln that has, like, literally all five of them uh, shown to you so you can see what they look like. And I did tell you about the Pioneers Park Nature Center at the Prairie Build. You can see rosin weed. You can see compass plant and cup plant. But a, a, a is the Backyard Farmer Garden on UNL East Campus. Uh, they have a nice compass plant there and a nice cup plant. No rosin weed, but at least they have those two uh, for you know, stop, look, and listen for a while because, uh, man, they'll be alive with pollinator, pollinating insects and other critters uh, just going crazy for those flowers. It's one of the top-rated pollinator plants, period. Okay, another very top-rated pollinator plant, one of my favorite groups of plants, are the mountain mints. And mountain mint, uh, when I say it to people, they often go, eh, they kind of cringe a little bit because they're going, I don't need a mint, they're too aggressive. Well, the mint species, the mentha, uh, spearmint, peppermint, things like that, yeah, sure, are aggressive. But the mountain mints were named mint because they have mint, minty-scented foliage, but they're a completely different animal. And they, uh, they do not spread uh, aggressively. There's one that does spread, but there's a way you can find a planet and you want to plant this plant because it's so super cool. It's called short-toothed mountain mint. And short-toothed mountain mint, again, just Google it if you want to look up images. It's such a unique plant. First of all, the foliage, if you rub it and smell it, it smells very minty. And certainly you can use any of these mountain mints for tea. They're all edible. But the short-toothed mountain mint um, has a little wider leaf compared to the others. And it will run. It it can be semi-aggressive. So this is a mountain mint that you grow in between a rock and a hard place, right? So... Maybe it bumps up into a, a big clump of grass or maybe uh, that stops it from spreading, you know, putting it in between your big blue stem or Indian grass or Cytos grama or any other prairie grass um, that'll kind of keep it at bay. Or you can plant it in between a sidewalk and your foundation, whatever works to keep it at bay because uh, it's worth growing. But the short-toothed mountain mint uh, around this time of year, the top of the plant, it's typically green, you know, and then the top of the plant uh, this time of year, it, it, it forms these bracts, and these bracts are basically just look like the leaves. But these bracts are silver, I mean a shiny silver color, and so eventually the whole top of the plant is silvery, and the lower part of the plant is still green, right? So you got this cool two-tone texture or color and texture of the plant because of those silvery bracts. And then inside of each one of those silvery bracts, and I call them bracts, but they look like leaves, right? Um, is is a, uh, a flower cluster. And the flowers themselves aren't hardly showy. They're small, but they kind of form in a, in a circle in this central disc. And uh, you want to talk about a pollinator plant extraordinaire. Uh, the short-toothed mountain mint is like, in my mind, one of the best. The, the critters clamor for it. And uh, it's tough as nails. Nothing bothers it. Bunnies won't eat it. Deer won't eat it. It laughs at drought. Um, Just very easy plant for you to take care of, including your garden. So look for the short-toothed mountain mint. Now, short-toothed mountain mint has is is more of an eastern native. It is not quite native to Nebraska, but pretty darn close, a couple a state or two away. And another one that fits that bill is called the hairy mountain mint. And hairy mountain mint is a mountain mint more for part shade. And a lot of us have those gardens. I had planted a hairy mountain mint a couple, three years ago in my part shaded home. It probably gets around, I would say, three to four hours of sun a day, and it loves that. 
and it's just coming into bloom right now. And one of the first critters I see after the mountain mints are those uh, shiny black wasps that you see in the garden. Those are called mud daubers. And uh, they make a, you know, maybe you've seen those wasp nests made of mud. That's how the mud dauber gets its name. But uh, completely harmless insect, completely harmless uh, um, critter. You know, it, it's not going to sting you, but it'll press you uh, with its flying skills because it shows off when it flies around, that's for sure. But the uh, hairy mountain mint is aptly named because the, the foliage and the stems are more fuzzy or more hairy. And uh, again, great uh, scented foliage, and it gets up to be around, oh, four feet high or so. And then another mountain mint that you have to consider is called narrowleaf mountain mint. And narrowleaf mountain mint is one of our natives, Nebraska natives, kind of more in the southeastern tier of the state. I think it gets into central part of the state as well. But the narrowleaf mountain mint is the most drought tolerant of all of them. Hence that narrow leaf. It forms a meatball of a plant about two by two feet and blooms for a long period with these clusters of small white flowers that kind of looks like a baby's breath if you squint your eyes. But man, talk about tough, easy, long bloom time. White flowers, mind you, but uh, go ahead and Google narrow leaf mountain mint and you'll see what I mean. Um, long lived, easy to grow, tough as nails. It loves the summer heat the narrow leaf mountain mint. And then finally, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the Virginia mountain mint, which is not quite native to Nebraska, hence the name Virginia mountain mint, more of an eastern species. But Virginia mountain mint gets up there around three feet tall, a little wider leaf, and, and probably the most scented of all the mountain mints and the best one, in my opinion, to use for tea. It makes one of our, our favorite uh, summer cold brew tea is using the mountain mint and uh, always look forward to a tea made out of that. But just like the narrow leaf mountain mint, this one gets uh, white clusters of flowers on the top of the plant, all about three feet tall, as I mentioned, and uh, long bloom time, solid three weeks, and the pollinators go crazy for all the mountain mints. So love them, appreciate them, you'll be glad you did. Plant your garden full of mountain mints and silphiums, and you'll be happy camper. All right, that's all the time I'm going to have for for your heat-loving summer sizzlers because I want to kind of switch gears now and go to foraging fun, which should be out foraging right now. <clears throat> and I don't think they're quite done yet, but if you know a patch of daylilies out there, uh, we're talking about the, the road ditch orange daylilies that, uh, you know, you see all over town in various areas, maybe even alleyways and stuff like that. And if you're going to go out and harvest these buds, talk to your neighbor and say, hey, do you mind if I harvest a few of those, right? <laughs> or if maybe you have some at home and you're like going, I hate all these daylilies because they spread and they run and they get, you know, kind of become a weed for some people. Well, those daylilies are completely edible. And right now... The fun thing to do, and make sure it's a daylily, not an Asiatic lily, because Asiatic lilies uh, are not edible. The common daylily is. And you can look, look it up online in China, where the daylily comes from. It is a staple uh, this time of year. They'll, they'll harvest those buds and stir fry them. And the best time to harvest those flower buds before they open is when they're just starting to show some color. And they'll kind of elongate to, oh, maybe an inch and a half throw them in your stir fry or give them a light saute with some garlic and a little spicy up uh, salt pepper some spices whatever turns you on they are so tasty 
or just munch a whole full flower right in front of your friends. That's a fun thing to do. There's even recipes online taking that flour and, uh, and then making a flour fritter out of it. There's recipes online where you can literally dredge it in a fritter batter and then fry it up in some hot peanut oil. Or you can take the little uh, hollow part, inner part of that flour and stuff it. And usually you'll stuff that inner flour with, oh, a cream cheese mixture. Maybe it has some chives in there, whatever, some red onion, uh, whatever turns you on, putting it in that mix, maybe some other herbs. And a little dollop of that kind of resting at the base of that daylily flour. And then you can serve that on your uh, a tray and have people eat it uh, uncooked, right? So it's a very pretty demonstration where you have a little dollop of cream cheese in the middle of each flower, and then the flowers are arranged on a plate. It's oh so pretty. Surprise your friends at your next potluck and bring daylily flowers that are stuffed. You'll be glad you did. And they're so good. It's kind of like squash, stuffed squash blossoms, if you've ever had those or heard of those, uh, zucchini and other summer squashes. The flowers are completely edible, and there's recipes online for that as well, where you can, again, dip them in a batter and fry them up. I mean to tell you, if you've never had stuffed squash blossoms, uh, fried stuffed squash blossoms, you're missing out. And usually when you have zucchini plants or yellow summer squash you're swimming in flowers, you're swimming in zucchinis, so you can afford to harvest a few of those flowers. And sometimes on a zucchini plant, I mean, those flowers will get big, you know, like four inches across big. So very easy for stuffing. So those are those are some great foraging fun tips for you right there. But one of my favorite things this time of year that's out and ready to roll right now, it's a timing thing. You don't want to wait too long. And uh, you, you can't get them too early. So the beautiful thing of foraging fun is it kind of teaches you plant calendars. It teaches you to be more observant. And it, and it actually gets you out of nature to score something for free. And the next one I'm talking about is uh, milkweed, our beloved common milkweed. And you want to do this with only the common milkweed. And uh, as you probably heard listening to this show, common milkweed is being planted a lot more and it's showing up a lot more because it is the larval food source for the monarch butterfly. So if you're harvesting from the milkweed, of course, you don't want to harvest every seed pod. You just want to get a few. You don't need that many. And if there's a big patch of of uh, milkweed out there, you're not going to be hurting the population because this plant spreads by underground runners. Uh, of course, we want the seed to distribute itself somewhere else, but just be cognizant of that. No more than one-third of the pods um, are you going to collect in any given patch. So just keep that in mind. But make sure your patch hasn't been sprayed, all those things, right? Keep that in mind. But right now, this time of year, uh, they're forming their seed pods. And the seed pods, if you look at your milkweed closely, are these cool little green, spongy-looking pods that hang on the plant. And if you squeeze that pod and it's still firm, it is perfect for picking. If you squeeze the pod and it feels kind of, uh, has a lot of give to it and it's spongy, you're too late and that pod gets big. Usually these pods are around, oh, an inch and a half, an, an inch to two inch. Let's put it that way. Anything bigger, and they start to get kind of spongy and, and really too late for harvest. But if you get them now, say you're out in the garden, you're thirsty, or you want a little snack, you can take one of those immature green pods, and there's a, a split line. You can literally put it between your two thumbs and split open that pod, and then you'll see the developing immature seeds, 
and there's kind of this white stuff inside of that pod, well, you can pull that out really easily and eat it raw. And I'm telling you, you'll be kind of blown away by how good it is. It's sweet, it's tasty, and it's completely delicious. So the inner stuffing you can take out of those pods and use it in making a, well, an, an addition to stuffed milkweed pods. So you take the pods, split them open, pull out that inside, chop it up, mix it up with chives, onions, other good stuff, and some cream cheese or whatever cheese of choice that you want, and then stuff that pod and then bake it. Oh, baby. It is so good. Stuffed milkweed pods. You can look that recipe up online. Uh, and actually, one of the better recipes, in my, this cat's opinion, is fried milkweed pods. That's a really good way. They, they really, uh, one of the best is, uh, is, is fried milkweed pods. So um, the pods really are my favorite. So anyway, you take those pods and uh, you blanch them. So you want to basically... Uh, cook them in some boiling water for a couple minutes, drain them well, basically get all the water off of them, and then soak them in buttermilk or a beaten egg uh, for a while, and then take them out of that and dredge it in some corn flour or fine cornmeal mixed with a few spices, whatever turns you on, and then uh, fry, deep fry them or um, you know, fry them in a shallow in a pan with a little bit of oil in it and get them golden brown. Oh, baby. Are you missing out if you've never tried fried milkweed pods? They're so good. And uh, there's good recipes online from one of my favorite sites, foragerchef.com. And Forager Chef has a great recipe for you, talks all about the beauty and bounty that is our common milkweed. So that is your foraging fun. Get out there and look for milkweed pods. And while you're at it harvesting those milkweed pods, look at the top of the plant. So the top of the plant uh, is probably forming some new growth right now. And the new growth, uh, the tiny little leaves, uh, very tip of the milkweed plant, you're usually, again, around one inch, maybe a two-inch leaf at the most. You can take those leaves much like you would a sage leaf and fry that leaf. And why would you do that? Well, it's just a nice little added texture to top off a dish or a salad or just eat like a potato chip, kind of like, like think kale chips, right, if you've ever had those. So you take that leaf and fry it in a little bit of olive oil. The key is not getting that olive oil too fast because you can imagine a leaf put in olive oil that's really hot, you'll scorch it, you'll burn it, right, really easy. And a leaf does not take long to cook either. We're talking like... 30 seconds, right? So you can't leave the stove top. You got to, you know, throw those leaves in. It's kind of fun to watch them fry. And then you take them off, drain them on a little paper towel, and then munch away. And uh, I think the fried milkweed leaves, the young leaves, are just the bomb. They are so good. So that is another foraging tip, your milkweed in nature's bounty. Another one I want to talk about, I think I mentioned on the show uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, this one is called purslane. And hopefully you know what purslane is if you don't Google images of the weed purslane because it is regarded by most everyone as an annoying weed. It's kind of a succulent looking thing and very prostrate. prostrate. It grows right along the ground, kind of hugs the ground with those fleshy leaves. But if you actually uh, 
have it in cultivated areas where it's seeded in or near your compost heap, those leaves will get big and thick. You know, we're talking an inch at least. Um, And those are the ones you want to harvest, right? But did you know that purslane is considered the top most, one of the top most nutritious foods on the planet, period? Did you just hear me say that? Purslane is one of the top nutritious foods on the planet. It offers a remarkable amount of minerals, most notably calcium, iron, magnesium, potassium. It's rich in omega-3 fatty acids. In fact, studies have shown it is like the richest plant in omega-3 fatty acids. What are those? Look them up. You'll see why they're good for us. And then vitamins A, B, and C, and chocked full of antioxidants. It's just a nutritional powerhouse, people. It is thought to be an important component of the Cretan high life expectancy diet. You know, when those people go interview cultures and say, so why does your why do your people live so long? What's the deal? Well, the Cretans will tell you that they consume a lot of purslane. In fact, purslane has been consumed since ancient times, and because it because of that, it grows easily all over the place in hot and not too dry climates. It is represented in many cuisines of the world, from Greece to Mexico, from Turkey to India all by way of South Africa. So it originates from South Africa, and that plant has used us humans to get all over this planet. And the reason people have introduced it is because of its nutrition, because of its high-life expectancy diet. And Michael Pollan, who you probably heard of, or Michael Pollan, sorry, has called it one of the two most nutritious plants on the planet in his Defense of Food Manifesto. Guess what the other one is, according to Michael Pollan? Ding, 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 ding. Time's up. The other one is lamb's quarters. And we've talked about lamb's quarters on the show too. So here is two free foods, free for the taken, lamb's quarters and purslane that are out there all over the place. And yet you'll never find them on the news. You'll never find it on, on the internet or anything like that. People are like, come on, man, it's right under our noses and it's free. Well, how do you use purslane anyway? Well, if you just Google purslane recipes, there's some great uh, recipes online. In fact, this one site I was looking at has like 45 things to do with fresh purslane. Did did you hear me? 45 things to do. Most often it's eaten fresh, like in salads and whatnot. It can be pickled and it can be cooked. There's a a recipe online for uh, soups. Uh, or for casseroles as well, but uh, try try your your hand at purslane soup with potatoes. And now potato season, new potato season. Pick up yourself some new potatoes at the farmer's market, and forage some purslane, and look up the recipe for purslane soup with p- potatoes, and you've got yourself nature's bounty. Good stuff, Maynard. And so anyway, it's just a a really cool plant and. Uh, you know, one we should be growing more of. Uh, people kind of describe it, um, oh, it's, you know, kind of the leaves are kind of crunchy and slightly mucilaginous, and as Kay Young calls it, slick, kind of a slick tes- texture when you're eating that leaf, and uh, kind of has a tangy, lemony, peppery-type flavor. Um, hard to describe. It just kind of tastes like purslane. <laughs> but again, if you've never foraged it yet, uh, look it up find the plant 
and be happy that you that you foraged it. And then uh, the late great Kay Young of Wild Seasons has some recipes in her book. So if you get Kay Young's book, Wild Seasons, she talks about its virtues in that book. And she said her favorite use of purslane is on tacos because they stay that nice, crisp, crunchy texture is a nice uh, addition. Uh, of course, we all love tacos, right? But I think one of the reasons you love tacos is because of the textural contrast you're getting, right, with the taco shell with all the goodies inside. So that purslane gives you a nice added crunchy, delicious flavor uh, to that taco. Of course, you could put it in your burritos and bake it too. Whatever turns you on. Okay, so that is your foraging fun tip for the day. Purslane, daylily flowers, milkweed pods, and tiny new leaves. You'll be glad you did. All right, people, I am out of time. I can't believe it already. I wanted to get to a few more things, but there's always next time. Do join me next week. I'll have a guest back on the program here on How's It Growing. Until then, you have a great week. Enjoy this summer heat and uh, do your rain dance. Pray for some rain. All right, I'll see you next week. Have a good one. Bye.